Now please take your Bibles and turn to the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 1. We began looking at Zechariah just last week. This evening we'll look at chapter 1, verses 7 through 17. Zechariah, chapter 1, 7 through 17. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with my mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Father in heaven, we come to you by faith, believing that the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word are means of grace to us. So apply them to us as means of grace. Multiply your grace to us this night and empower your word. Use it, Lord, to sanctify us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Late in the life of King David, he sinned against the Lord by taking an unlawful census of the people of Israel. You may know the story. You may have read it. And if you have read it, you may be a little bit perplexed by some of the details uh, of that story. And I don't intend at this time to address any of the problematic questions about Uh, how the census came about and why exactly it was sinful and so on and so forth. I just want to note that David's actions were displeasing to God, according to the scriptures, and that God had determined to bring some sort of temporal punishment upon the whole nation of Israel because of David's sin. 
but he gave David the choice of what specific punishment would come. He gave them three choices, and David had to choose one of them. Either three years of famine, three months of fleeing before his foes, or three days of pestilence. And probably the most important thing about that whole incident is the choice that David made and why he made that choice. The answer that he gave to the prophet Gad, whom the Lord sent to David, is found in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 14. And this is what David said. He said, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So presented with this choice, in David's mind, it wasn't a decision that revolved around the pros and cons of different forms of judgment. And it wasn't a decision that revolved around the duration, whether three days or three months or three years. David's experiences with both God and man had taught him that men are cruel and that God is merciful. It's kind of like if a, if a a loving father knows that he needs to discipline his son for some wrongdoing. But that loving father will administer the discipline himself. He won't delegate that task of disciplining his son to bullies on the playground. He won't abandon his son in that way, because a loving father is going to discipline his son with restraint and with love. And the kids in the schoolyard won't do that. David had learned that God, in his wrath, remembers mercy, and he knew quite well that man does not remember mercy. Man, to use the language of Romans 1, is heartless and ruthless. So David humbly submitted himself to the hand of God and to God's discipline. He submitted himself to his heavenly Father, but he said, let me not fall into the hand of man. As if to say, anything but that. Well, as we come to this passage in Zechariah, the people of Judah had suffered the heartlessness and the ruthlessness of man. The Lord had utilized the nations to punish his rebellious people, and the nations did that job, but they did it in a heartless and in an excessive way. As it says in verse 15 of our text, the Lord was angry against Judah, but these nations furthered the disaster. They went too far, in other words. They relished the task of destroying the people of God, and by their cruelty, and their excess, God was very displeased. So in our text, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, and on this occasion, it was three months' time uh, that had elapsed since his first prophecy that we looked at at the beginning of the book. And it came to him in the form of a vision. He says, I saw in the night. And this vision in verses 7 through 17 is the first in a series of eight visions that Zechariah received, and those eight visions make up the first six chapters of the book, and that's part of the organization of the book. Chapters one through six are the visions, and they're sometimes called Zechariah's night visions because we know that this first vision came to him in the night, 
And there's no clear time stamp of any kind for any of the rest of the visions. And they do seem to flow from one to the next. And it's assumed by many scholars that these visions all came on the same occasion. They all came in one night. And so we sometimes call them Zechariah's night visions. And in this first vision, the first of eight, the Lord responds to the heartless, ruthless cruelty of the nations, and he returns to his people. And by that, what we're shown in this passage is that the Lord's anger is but for a moment, but his mercy endures forever. That's the theme of this passage, and I'm borrowing words from elsewhere in Scripture, but I think that's the clear lesson here. The Lord's anger is for a moment, but his mercy endures forever. We're going to look at three points. We're going to see the writer's report, and then we're going to see the angel's appeal, and finally, the Lord's loving kindness. So first of all, we have the report of these riders. In this first vision, Zechariah sees a man riding on a red horse. This man, it says, is in a glen. Now that Hebrew word is translated in our Bible, glen, it simply means depth or it means a deep place. And it's usually a reference to deep waters, actually. The most of the time that this word occurs in the Hebrew Bible, it's a reference to waters. And we see that kind of use later on in Zechariah. Chapter 10, verse 11, it's a reference to the depths of the Nile River. But here, since we're talking about a depth of some kind where there are myrtle trees, it's obviously not underwater, and so we take it to mean something like a ravine. In fact, there are English versions that translate the word in that way. When the text says the man was standing among the myrtle trees, it could mean that he's dismounted his horse and he is standing, or that he's still mounted on the horse, but he's uh, uh, not any longer in motion, standing in that sense. But whatever it means, whatever the case, behind this man riding the red horse, there are other horses. Red horses, white horses, and sorrel horses. And there's no consensus about what sorrel means or what color it's describing. The ancient Hebrew has much fewer uh, words to describe different colors and shades of color than English does. So we don't know exactly what sorrel means or what the Hebrew word translated sorrel means. But you can't help asking the question, is there some kind of symbolism in the color of these horses? And I'm inclined to say that there's probably not. When we get to chapter 6 of Zechariah, we're going to encounter horses again, and the horses are going to be different colors. And then when we get, to, we won't get there in, in this series, but if you read Revelation chapter 6, you also will see horses, horse, four different horses, four different colors, and there's no consistency from one of these visions to the next of the use of colors there. Um, so we shouldn't try to make too much of these details and I don't think we should look, try to look for special messages in the fact that, oh, this horse was red and this horse was a different color. Um, I don't think we should try to decode that in some way or find some special message. There was an observation made by a commentator that I think is very helpful at this point, and I quote, One mistake in interpreting apocalyptic literature is to seek to identify the significance of every element of the picture. Some elements simply contribute to the picture's background and have no other purpose. The important elements of the vision are the ones that are explained. 
You know, the same thing is usually true of Jesus' parables, right? A parable may have one or more main points, but not every single detail of the parable has to have doctrinal significance for us or doctrinal substance. So if we're going to look for the main uh, or the most important or the significant elements of the vision, well, what are they? What does this vision mean? Um, Well, Zechariah asked the same question. He asked the angel who talked with him, what are these, my Lord? He doesn't understand what he's seeing, and so he asks, and the angel says, I'll show you. And the answer comes from the man in the glen, the one on the ride horse, uh, the red horse standing among the myrtle trees. Now again, we, we have that guy, and we've got the angel who's talking to uh, Zechariah, so it might be a little bit difficult to keep straight all the characters that are involved in this scenario here. Um, but the man on the horse in verses 8 and 10 is also the angel of the Lord in verse 11. That much is pretty clear. Those, uh, those are all the same person. He's called the, the angel of the Lord. And uh, in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord frequently is actually a reference to the second person of the Godhead. I don't think we can necessarily make the case that it's that or it's him every single time. But usually, or often, when the, when the scriptures speak in the Old Testament of the angel of the Lord, in that uh, specific sense, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the one who gives the answer to Zechariah's question. The horses in the glen, Zechariah asked, what are these? The horses in the glen were sent by the Lord to patrol the earth. Why? Verse 11 says that they were, we could say they were on a divine reconnaissance mission. They were sent out to patrol, and they'd completed their patrol, and they come back and give a report. And they say, we have patrolled the earth. And behold, all the earth remains at rest. That's kind of a comfortable saying, isn't it? Rest. Is it a good thing that these scouts found all the earth at rest? Well, I don't mean to disappoint you, but I think in this particular case, this is not a good thing. Um, it's not a, it doesn't have a good connotation. It has a connotation of spiritual slumber. They were spiritually lethargic. They were off guard. And it probably also includes the notion that the peoples of the world, uh, the present world powers especially, had oppressed the people of Judah and had not faced any consequences for it. They were resting. They were at ease. They hadn't suffered at all for what they had done to the people of God. So that aspect of their rest comes out and is shown in verse 15. That's where the Lord of hosts says, I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. See, there was a spiritual complacency about this rest that they were enjoying. They were at rest in that God had not brought judgment upon them yet. Well, that brings us to the angel's appeal. Because in response to the report of those who patrolled the earth, the angel of the Lord offers up a prayer. That's what we find in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me again. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah 
against which you have been angry these 70 years. Now that's just one verse, but there are several things in it for us to consider. And the first one and the, of most importance is that this prayer that the angel offers up is a prayer of intercession. The angel is praying on behalf of the covenant people of God. He's crying out to the Lord and he's asking the Lord to grant mercy to the people. And this heartfelt cry of how long, you're probably familiar with that. It, it, it occurs many times in Scripture. It occurs repeatedly in the Psalms. It occurs when God's people are oppressed. It occurs when God's people are in need and they cry out to Him. They've been waiting for Him to act. They've been waiting for Him to remember them in that biblical sense of remembering. An example of this, of this cry, how long, is, uh, is found in Psalm 79, verse 5. Psalm 79, verse 5. And the psalm says, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Very much like what the angel prays here in Zechariah. Similar expressions occur throughout the prophets and throughout the Old Testament. It's a cry for relief. It's a plea for help. And in this case, the angel of the Lord uses it to intercede for the people of God. He asks God to grant them mercy. Now their need for mercy comes down to this. They have been under God's wrath. These cities of Judah, against whom the angel of God says God has been angry. He'd been angry against them for how long? Seventy years. Seventy years of no mercy, in a sense. This span of time has great significance when it comes to this period of exile. Because Jeremiah had prophesied that Judah would go into captivity to Babylon and remain in exile for 70 years. And he also prophesied that at the end of the 70 years, the Lord would bring his people back to the land. Now, if we take 70 years from the exact date of Zechariah's vision here, and we can do that because we have the time stamp. It was the second year of Darius. That was 520 B.C. If you rewind 70 years, that's uh, 590 B.C., and there wasn't anything special going on in that year. Uh, it comes within four years of the time when Jerusalem fell, And at that 70-year mark, 590 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar had already come with his armies to Jerusalem, to Judah twice, and there had already been two deportations. But it wasn't a, uh, an exact 70 years. But if we want a precise marker, here's a good actual perfect 70-year span of time. From the time that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians to the time that uh, Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple, was rebuilt. That was 70 years. So you do have a precise 70-year period, but it hadn't been a quite, quite a full 70 years uh, when this vision occurred. But that's, that's no big concern for us. The point of all this is that duration of time it did take place, and God's anger against his people was righteous anger. It was anger that was fully just. 
But now, the angel of the Lord appeals to God's mercy. And I think that supports the idea that the angel of the Lord is an is a expression, a manifestation of, of Christ, of the second person of the Godhead. Because it is the Lord Jesus. This reflects, it reflects the mercy and the compassion of the Lord Jesus who intercedes for his people. His people's oppressors are at ease. His people are oppressed. And this stirs him to pray for them. And the Lord answers his prayer. This brings us to our third point. We see the Lord's loving kindness. The Lord answers. And the answer is one of grace. It's an answer of comfort. Look at verse 13. Zechariah says, And the the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. The angel who talked with me, as he's described there. That's a different angel than the angel of the Lord. In verse 9 and verse 13 and verse 14, Zechariah describes this angel as the angel who talked with me. And uh, biblical scholars often refer to him as the interpreting angel. In response to those good and comforting words, this angel gives Zechariah a message to proclaim. Verse 14, So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. So as we've seen elsewhere in in the Scriptures and elsewhere in the minor prophets, we have this notion of jealousy. And the notion of jealousy almost automatically has a negative connotation for us in our minds, doesn't it? But when the Scripture uses the attribute of jealousy in reference to God, it's a good thing. In fact, it has to be, doesn't it? Because it's a divine attribute. With God, jealousy isn't the same as envy. With God... Jealousy isn't like that overly possessive boyfriend or that disgruntled coworker who's envious that somebody else got the promotion or whatever. With God, jealousy is a faithful zeal. With God, jealousy is a passionate desire to protect his people. One commentator described it as a vehemence in devotion. It's an expression of his love for his people. And because of his strong love for his people, he is going to visit them in mercy. The word exceedingly appears two times in the text. The first, it speaks of the great love God has for his covenant people. And the second, it indicates his corresponding intensity of anger against those nations that are at ease. Exceeding devotion to his beloved children and exceeding wrath towards the children of the earth. Now I know that you know that God hates sin. And I know that you know that sin brings wrath. And all people have sinned. So they are all, and we are all, subject to the wrath and judgment of the Almighty. But in these verses, the particular cause of God's anger against the nations is that These nations whom God had used to chastise his people had gone to extremes in their treatment of them. Yes, God had ordained that the people of Israel and the people of Judah be judged and undergo all those hardships of 
being conquered and the pains of being carried away into exile, but these nations overdid it. They were wantonly cruel, and that displeased God. There's a glimpse of this in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 47, verse 6, where God says, I was angry with my people, I profaned my heritage, I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. The nations whom God employs as means of his wrath have a sinful tendency to take pleasure in meeting out that wrath, you see. They delight to do harm. They revel in bringing affliction. They further the disaster, as the text says, meaning that they take it to extremes of which the Lord did not approve. And in this text, we're not told what God is going to do to them in retribution for their excesses, but we are told of the gracious and comforting words and the gracious and comforting things He's going to do for His people. Verse 16 says, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. Meaning that grand project of rebuilding the temple was going to come to completion. It was going to be successful. He also says, the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So in addition to the rebuilding of the temple... Jerusalem as a city will be rebuilt. Building lots for houses will be marked off. Dwelling places will be skillfully and beautifully constructed as Jerusalem is rebuilt. Verse 17, then, is a promise of abundance, blessing, and grace for Zion and for Jerusalem. You'll see in verse 17 that the word again occurs four times. As formerly, as in their very best days, God's cities, those cities of the people of Judah, will overflow with prosperity. He will again comfort them. He will again choose them. Although they were, at the time that Zechariah was receiving this vision and proclaiming to them, the people were very few. They were very poor. And yet, The word of the Lord to them is that they will again be many and they'll be wealthy. That teaches us that there's a continuity of blessing and a continuity of grace with the past history of the chosen people of God, Abraham's offspring. And that continuity of blessing is woven through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Now, what can we get from this text uh, as we conclude? What, what's, what application is there for us? Well, first of all, from the report of the riders, we receive this important reminder that in the words of Proverbs fifteen three, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. He sent out those riders to patrol the earth. And the writers brought back a report of what was going on in the earth. It's a reminder to us that God sees everything. God is omniscient. 
He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing can be hidden from him. And he's also omnipresent. He fills heaven and earth. And it's not as if he requires created beings like horse patrols to go out and find information for him and bring it back. But these riders who patrol the earth symbolize the fact that God knows everything that's going on in all of his creation. He's aware of it all. Nothing escapes his attention. And that includes everything you do, everything you say, even the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. They're all laid bare in God's sight. So live every day with that knowledge. Know that he sees, that he's watching. Live before the face of God. Live coram Deo. And if you're conscious of things in your life that you know are unpleasing to the Lord, you need to confess those things to Him. You need to seek His mercy, which He offers to you through the blood of Christ. Secondly, we can learn something from the appeal that's made by the angel of the Lord. Because in that we see the heart of Jesus Christ Himself, don't we? The compassion We see the example of his intercession for all of us who put our trust in Christ. Christ prays for his people. Scripture teaches us that. This passage teaches us that. Christ prays for you. You may not have a prayer partner right now, officially, that you meet with and that you can count on to pray for you, but you have Jesus. And he ever lives to intercede for you. So contemplate this display of his compassion and of his care. He prays to the Father for you. And he pleads for mercy in your behalf. And if you are in union with him, you will receive mercy because Christ shed his blood in order to purchase that mercy for you. Secure it to guarantee it. Praise be to the Lord Christ. This passage also teaches us something about God's wrath. We hear a lot about God's wrath in the Bible, and it's a subject that's not very savory to us. But verse 15 helps us to see that God's wrath is always just. It's always righteous. It's never cruel. His anger described here against the nations was because They had exceeded his own just and righteous anger and engaged in wanton acts of cruelty. But remember this, God's wrath is always just. And we have to think about that even in terms of something as as horrible to think about as eternal judgment. The eternal judgment of the wicked is just and righteous anger on the part of God. It's not excessive, it's not cruel. It's exactly what sin deserves. Never think that the sins of those who are in hell don't deserve torment for all eternity. Never think that our own sins don't deserve that. That's what every sin deserves. And it's completely just of God to punish the wicked for eternity. But finally, know that God reaches out to hell-deserving sinners. He extends mercy. He extends grace. 
He reaches out to hell-deserving sinners with comforting gospel words. He is merciful and compassionate to those who fear Him. In every age, including ours, God calls people to repent and turn to Him. And to all those who do, He will return in mercy. He's a wise and loving Heavenly Father. He disciplines every child whom He receives. He is rightly angry against our sins, but His anger was ultimately appealed, appeased excuse me, on, the Christ, on the cross of Jesus Christ. All of God's anger was propitiated. It was satisfied by Christ's sacrifice in our behalf. And for all those who trust in Christ, the Lord's anger is for a moment, but His mercy endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that You are more just than we are. You're you're perfectly just. You are righteous. We are not. We think of David and how he begged to fall into your hands and not into the hands of man. Lord, we thank you that although your anger anger is for a moment, your, your mercy endures forever. Lord, we praise you for testifying of this mercy in your very word. Otherwise, we might be inclined not to even believe such great news that you have pity upon sinners, but we thank you that in Christ you do, and we look to you for that mercy and pray that you would apply it afresh to us, that you would give us a fresh sense, a fresh appropriation of the forgiveness that we have through the blood of our Savior, and help us to go this week and to live for him and to walk with him and to give glory to you in his name. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.